Let's start just by asking a couple of rhetorical questions. How many of you are sort of generally conscious all the time of your finances? Your mortgage, uh, the pace at which you're approaching retirement and whether you're ready for that or not. How many in your consciousness of things financial have a certain anxiety about it? A sense of worry that you'll not be able to do the things that you feel like you should be able to do. And it might just mean your nest egg in a few years. It might mean kids and college. It might mean keeping your house. I don't know. But how many of you sometimes or often have a sense of anxiety when you think about your finances? How many of you in the context of the church um, struggle with the idea of giving to the church, to the kingdom, because you think you can't afford it. This morning is not a plea for money. In fact, the message isn't even about money specifically. But it does have to do with how we think about money and other things that we have. We're, we're continuing today our study of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And up until this point, we've so far considered mostly who he is and some things that he has done. But today and for the next few weeks, we're going to listen to what he said and pay attention to his teachings. You might remember that in our previous sermon series, which was built around the acronym C-H-R-I-S-T, Christ, we finished with the letter T with Christ as teacher. And we said at that time that Christ's authority as a teacher was not merely the authority of somebody who is a subject matter expert, but the authority of one who is Lord over all. I can say to my kids with authority that two plus two equals four, and I can say with authority, it's time for your bath and then time to go to bed. One authority is in, I know what I'm talking about, authority. Another authority is an I'm your dad and I'm pulling rank kind of authority. And Jesus didn't just know what he was talking about, but he had the ultimate authority within himself to command conformity to what he said. Uh, I read on Facebook a few weeks ago the rhetorical question, how many times did Jesus say thou shalt not? And the assumption was, I think, that he didn't. But he actually said it a fair bit. Do not do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Do not lord it over each other like the Gentiles do. Do not judge others. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. In fact, Jesus even took the Old Testament, thou shalt nots, and built on them. Do not murder, I say. Do not even harbor anger and insult your brother. Do not commit adultery, I say. Do not harbor lust in your heart. The truth is, Jesus issued a lot of commands. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. And he said on one occasion, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Another time, after giving a whole series of commands... He said, you know, if you put these words of mine into practice, you'll be, your life will be like, like a house built on rock. And when the storm comes, it'll still stand. It remains solid. So I, I think we do well to pay attention to the commands of Jesus, to listen to his teachings. 
As we notice the teachings of Jesus in the gospel, we might be surprised at what subjects he does and does not address. For example, did you know that he talks far more about hell and judgment than he does about heaven? Did you know that he says very, very little about formal worship, which I think is something we would devote a lot of energy to if we were teaching? The one topic that Jesus spoke about more than any other thing was money. Now, if you think about that for a minute, I think that's not surprising. Money and material wealth, I think, has always been the number one contender rivaling our allegiance to God, the number one contender for taking the throne of our hearts. And it was no less true in Jesus' day than it is true in our day. We think our day is a very materialistic and wealth-driven culture. It is, and I think most cultures have always been like that. In fact, in Jesus' day, the, the lure of possessions and wealth and money was so significant that it was actually personified and given a name. It was the deity Mammon. You may have heard that before. The, the God that represents the lust for money, the lust for more, Mammon. And the thing is that wealth and the appeal of wealth is not amoral. It's not a morally neutral thing. Uh, Andrew Carnegie, who was a wealthy industrialist over a century ago, decided when he was 33 years old that he would seek to arrange his life so that his annual income would not exceed $50,000. And that was a huge amount in his day. And beyond that, he said, I'm going to give any surplus, I'm just going to give it away. And accordingly, he gave away vast amounts of wealth over the years. Why did he do that? This is what he wrote when he was 33 years old. He said, man must have an idol and the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Now think about that. This is from one of the world's richest men. In 2007, Forbes magazine reckoned his wealth when he died to be almost $300 billion in 2007 terms. He went on. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly on the way to make more money in the shortest time, this must degrade me beyond the hope of permanent recovery. Carnegie understood that money had a power over him, that it was a kind of spiritual sickness that was eroding his character. And Jesus, I think, shared Carnegie's belief that a desire for wealth does something to us. And in our text today, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus warns us to guard against that desire, to not be anxious about material concerns, and both to understand and then to seek what real treasure is. The catalyst for Jesus' teaching is a request made to him by somebody in the crowd. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Now, it's interesting what Jesus does. The man in the crowd thought he was being motivated by what value, what principle? Fairness. Justice. Surely, Jesus, you are, you would affirm fairness and justice. But Jesus immediately begins talking about covetousness or greed. Take care. Be on your guard against it. It's, it's a common trick of ours, I think, to couch our sin in such terms that it doesn't sound like sin. Gossiping and calling it sharing a concern. Or in our culture of litigation that we sue and say, but it's not about the money. I just want to make sure this doesn't happen to someone else. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Even though I have no right to the money, it was my father's money, he can do with it what he wants, even though it'll probably estrange me from my brother to make this request, it's not about the money, Jesus, it's about fairness. But Jesus saw through it. Watch out, he says. Greed has got a hold of you. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then Jesus tells a story. There's a rich man who for years has had a knack for investing wisely. He bought low, he sold high, sometimes he bought high and rode the momentum of his great portfolio and sold even higher. His small business prospered until it became a pretty sizable business. And then suddenly, some years before he was expecting to retire, there was a perfect storm of circumstances that made early retirement not only possible but irresistible. The real estate market exploded so that the properties that he owned were worth twice what he paid for them just two years ago. And someone at the same time made him an offer for his business for an exorbitant sum. And one night he lay in bed and he thought to himself and said, you know what, if I sell these properties and if I accept this offer on my business, I will be able to buy that $2 million home in Springbank and retire and travel to all the places that I've always wanted to go. Money will be no object, and I can live in comfort and ease the rest of my life. A couple hours later, he awoke to a peculiar sensation down one side of his body. And he understood what it was, and he managed to dial 911 on the bedside phone, but when the ambulance came, he couldn't even speak, and before they got him to the hospital, he was gone. And all the wealth that he spent all those years accumulating was taxed and the rest distributed among his named heirs. In all of his life, people had called him all kinds of wonderful names. Shrewd investor, go-getter, hard worker, ambitious, industrious. God, though, calls him fool. And such, Jesus says, is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A fool. Now, it would seem that Jesus could have stopped there. He's made his point, be on your guard against covetousness, for life does not consist in the amount of your possessions. Then he's illustrated his point by telling the story of a rich man who died leaving all of his riches behind and never having weighed his short life against eternity. Fool. Point. Illustrate the point. Only that wasn't Jesus' point. Jesus wasn't just saying, don't be materialistic. 
He wasn't even saying that we need to prepare for eternity and not think only about our life on earth. If that was his point, he could have stopped at the end of the parable. But Jesus is concerned about the heart. He's concerned about character. He's concerned about the motivations that lie beneath the surface. And so he presses the issue because he wants us to look inside and to see what's there. It's not just about greed. It's not just about money. It's about what greed can do to us. It's about what our perspective on money reveals about us. And so Jesus goes on, further dissecting these twin ideas of greed and the belief that life consists in the abundance of possessions. And the first thing Jesus does then is introduce us to greed's evil offspring, worry. He said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. And how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus could not, I think, have laid it out more clearly than that. There is a logical progression. A belief that life consists in the abundance of possessions leads inevitably to greed Because more and better stuff equals more, better and fuller life. That's the mantra of our day, and not just in the rich West. Uh, A couple of years back, I spent a week in Liberia, Africa, uh, a country that had just emerged out of 10 years of, or almost 20 years of civil war, very poverty-stricken, people living in profound hardship. And one of the young men there said to me, that he, he wanted me to take him back to Canada because in Canada, nobody worries about anything. Everyone's happy. Everyone has what they need. And he thought, you know what? If you have materially everything that you need, you'll be happy. No worries, no anxiety. If I could just have more money, if I could just have a better house, if I could just have stuff, all my problems would go away. That's what he thought. Many of you years ago came to this country from another country. And you came wanting to make a better life for yourself and for your family. My question is, how did you define better life? There is a danger that we think the better life is the more material, prosperous, comfortable, leisurely, convenient life. That life consists in the abundance of possessions leads inevitably to greed, and greed leads inevitably to worry, to anxiety. If life is always about ensuring that you have enough money, enough clothes, enough food, enough stuff, then you will inevitably be anxious. Because when do you have enough? How can I protect what I have? But even that worry and that anxiety is only a deeper, a symptom of a deeper issue, which really is a lack of trust in God. 
The very next thing Jesus says, verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, who you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Thou shalt not be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added unto you as well. Fear not, little flock. Thou shalt not be afraid. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God knows what you need, Jesus says. Don't seek those things, but seek God's kingdom And then you will also have what you need. And by the way, Jesus is not saying, just ignore all that stuff. Don't even consider it. Okay, not at all. It's wise to work for food. It's wise to prepare for the future. But whenever the Bible talks about seeking something, it always has this idea of single-minded pursuit, a focused, consuming desire. And don't give stuff. That kind of centrality to your life, Jesus says, that's God's place. He is to be sought. His kingdom, his rule, his values are to be the central pursuit of your life. And you will discover as you live that way that this God who loves you will make sure that you have what you need. But recognize that life consists in God. He is the treasure. And to seek him first is to be rich toward God, and that is truly rich. The question is, how do you know if you are or are not seeking God first? Well, there is one surefire, no-fail signal, and that is the presence or the absence of worry. If I find myself worrying or anxious about anything, then I know that in some way I do not have a right perspective on the situation. That I'm not trusting God or I'm centered upon something else for my security and hope or I'm just not seeing something correctly. But the presence of worry or anxiety in my life is an unmistakable signal to me that I'm learning to recognize, a signal that I'm seeking something other than God's kingdom first. And I am not seeing my reality through God's eyes in some way. My kids these days are enjoying these books from the library called My Body Battles, Cavity and Earache, Skin Knee. It just talks about what your body does when there's something wrong with the body. And inevitably, when you have an earache or a stomach ache or a skinned knee, your body hurts and sends a signal to the brain that something is wrong and that certain things need to go to that spot and begin the work of repair and moving us toward health. Worry is a signal to my spirit that something is wrong with my perspective, with my faith, with my mindset. And Jesus, like any good physician, not only diagnoses the problem here, If you're worried or anxious about material things, you're not seeking or trusting God, so stop worrying. He also writes a prescription. If I hold up a packet of cold medicine, it will say something like, remedy for runny nose and cough due to cold. 
Well, Jesus here gives us a remedy for worry due to preoccupation with material things. And this is what it is. What is it, by the way? What's his remedy? Yes and no. Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Generosity is the cure for greed and for the worry that greed breeds. Generosity is the way to ensure that while you may possess wealth, wealth does not possess you. Generosity affirms that money is your servant not your master. And Andrew Carnegie got that. The pursuit of wealth will degrade my character irreparably, so I need to limit my income and give the rest away. And here's the lovely paradox. That generosity is not just downsizing your treasure here. It's actually building treasure, real treasure, where it counts, toward God and in eternity. And Jesus told the story of the rich fool whose soul was required of him right at the time when he thought he was financially set for life. There's two more men with money in the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, that is Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. There's that phrase again. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, you know, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Now here's another rich man, apparently very religious, and even recognizing that Jesus has some spiritual authority. So surely this guy is on the right track. But when Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments and reminds him that to inherit eternal life requires perfect keeping of God's commands, instead of humbly saying, no one can perfectly keep those commands, will not God have mercy on me? Which is where true salvation begins. Instead of saying that, the rich man says, well, you know what? I've actually kept them. For as long as I can remember, I've kept the commands. To which Jesus says, well, then you only lack one thing. Sell what you have, give the money to the poor, and follow me. Now, Jesus was not affirming, I think, that the man really had kept the commands of God, and if he just did this one more thing, he'd have 
done all that was necessary. I think Jesus is about to point out to this man that he has not, in fact, in fact kept the commands of God. Very first command of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus says, okay, we'll start there. If I ask you to surrender your wealth for the sake of eternal life, will you do it? And the man walked away sad. He had another God that he was not willing to give up. And did you, know, you notice he was so used to thinking financially, it even showed in his language. He didn't want to receive eternal life or obtain it. What did he want? To inherit it. That's a financial word. If I do this, if I invest in this way, will I gain Will I inherit eternal life? And he walks away sad because he's got another God. And Jesus says then, see the power of mammon? How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But with God, Jesus says, it's possible. Now fast forward to chapter 19. And we see a third man with money enter the kingdom of God. Verse 1. Here's the story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die, and he passes through Jericho. And a crowd gathers to see him, and Zacchaeus is among them. Uh, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means he is both greatly rich and greatly hated by his people, a collaborator with Rome who got rich at the expense of his own countrymen. Now, whether Zacchaeus is seeking spiritually or if he's just curious to see Jesus, we don't know. But in any event, he's prevented from seeing Jesus. Why? Not by his height, even though he was short, but by the crowd. Yeah, you could be this tall and you could have seen Jesus if the crowd would just let you through. But they didn't. They, de they despised him. They were not going to let him through. And it's unfortunately a tragic reality still, I think, that religious people often keep people from seeing Jesus. So Zacchaeus climbs a tree to get a better view, and when Jesus comes by, he not only sees Zacchaeus, but invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for lunch. Now Zacchaeus has just experienced grace, just as Matthew the tax collector did, as we heard last week's Sunday. And Jesus doesn't just engage Zacchaeus in conversation, he declares that he wants to go to Zacchaeus' house and have a meal with him. And in a hospitality culture, that was about the highest affirmation, the highest compliment that Jesus could have given to him. And all the other people around that watched this happen are scandalized. Jesus would go eat with a sinner? But Zacchaeus is transformed by that reality. And I don't know what the conversation over dinner was. I wish that Luke had recorded it. But at one point, Zacchaeus stands up and spontaneously says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And that's the signal to Jesus that a real change has happened in Zacchaeus. The rich man opens his hand to the poor and makes a fourfold restitution for past financial wrongs. And today, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus is rich toward God. He knows that life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Today, a rich man has entered the kingdom of heaven. With God, it is possible. 
Three men with money. One, a rich fool. Another, a rich fool. And the third, one whose experience of grace led to salvation and its expression in generosity. And the truth is that only grace can breed that kind of generosity. Only grace can free us from mammon and from worry over financial things. I want to read one more scripture with you. And this is from 2 Corinthians. And sometime, maybe even today, read chapters 8 and 9 together. Paul is writing to the church, thanking them for their generosity and being amazed at the fact that even though they were poor, they refused to be kept out of the grace of giving. They said, you know what, we don't have anything, but you can't tell us not to give. And they gave out of their lack, Paul says, and he affirms them for that. And then he sets it in the context of chapter 8, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The only healthy or appropriate motivation for generosity is grace. That we give because we have been given much. Jesus says, freely you've received now freely give. Second Corinthians talks about the fact that God is a God of comfort who comforts us so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received. And that is, that's upside down from how we normally think of generosity. I think we normally think of generosity as in good Christians tithe. Good Christians give. And I had, I had better do that if I'm going to be a good Christian. Jesus wants me to give, so I better do it. Real generosity overflows and explodes from the fact that we are overwhelmed with the fact that God has been good to us. And I am like him. Christ's nature is being formed in me. And therefore, I will just find myself naturally being generous. I will find myself naturally releasing the things that God has given to me. I am so enamored by Jesus that what our culture says about wealth and stuff and material goods just, it rolls off me like water off a dog's, duck's back. It doesn't have a hold on me. Jesus has a hold on me. And I started this morning with a couple of questions. I want to end with a couple of questions. I want to ask you to ask yourself, or better, ask God about two things. Ask God about worry. Ask yourself about worry. Hmm, do I find myself anxious when I think about my future or finances? Do, do I worry about it? Do I spend an inordinate amount of my mental and emotionally ener emotional energy worrying about whether I'll have enough, whether I'm stockpiling enough, whether in 10 years I'll be, I'll be well off. Is it, is it wisdom or good stewardship or is it fear? Do I worry, Lord? Do I worry? And then the other question, the flip side of the same question is, ask yourself about generosity. And you can ask it financially or in any other area. Time, 
love, emotions, care? Am I generous? Lord, do I just approach life with your own spirit of generosity, or am I inherently protective, selfish? Do I worry? Am I generous? Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't don't worry about these things. Seek first God's kingdom. God gave me for you. I laid down my life for you. Will he not graciously give you all things? Are you worried? Can you trust? Can we do that together? We want to be a community of people marked by trust and by generosity and not by anxiety and fear and worry. Generosity needs to become just the thing that we do. And you know what? We've seen that in the last week. So blessed to see generosity, how you responded to a need. And we will see an increase of that kind of generosity of money and time and program as we are increasingly enamored with the love of God for us in Christ. If you find yourself worried this morning, I just want to remind you that the one who is Lord of heaven and earth is your Father, and he knows what you need. May he help us to trust him more deeply and more fully. Let's pray. God of the universe, who is also our dear Heavenly Father. It's great to say those things together. Thank you for your love for us, for your concern and care, and your promise that you will give us all that we need. And I ask on our behalf this morning that you will help us to trust you, help us to understand what it is that we need and don't need, and to seek first your kingdom without anxiety, but with love and trust and no fear. I pray for an increase in generosity because it reflects your character. And the generosity that just shows that we are not clinging to anything other than you. By your spirit, work that reality into our lives, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.